great to see everyone here as we as believers are celebrating what is known as Christianity's great moment, and that is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have been studying today the chapter 53 of the book Isaiah, and I'll ask you to turn there. And you say, well, what does Isaiah 53 have to do with the resurrection? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. (laughs) Well, as you hear from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul describes the gospel, he says, here's the gospel that Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose again on the third day. But he adds, according to the scriptures. So the, the question is, Well, we know in the Old Testament where it talks about Christ's death, but where in the Old Testament does it talk about Christ's resurrection? There is Psalm Psalm 16 and Psalm 22, but there's also Isaiah 53, particularly verses 10 through 12, and this gives great, great detail. Now, as we're looking at this, uh, I want to just go through a little bit of a review, a quick review. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 3, we entitled, The Rejected Savior. As we look at Isaiah 53, let me just read those first three verses. It says, verse 1, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the Lord, arm of the Lord, been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, And like a root out of a parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Now, a couple of things there real quick. First of all, Isaiah is writing to the Jewish people. And of course, the ones that are Christ's own, his own people, they rejected him. It says in John 1 that he came unto his own and his own received him not. But it's interesting that Isaiah uses pronouns that includes himself in there. And I think it's possible to broaden that, that we're talking about the whole world that has rejected him. Now, of course, He has drawn some and have come to Christ. But we still live in a world that on today they're especially upset because we're celebrating the actual literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm sad to say that some of this is coming from the voices in so-called Christianity. Well, why is this a part of my resurrection sermon? Well, We know that not only did the Jews reject him, and not only does the world reject him, but on the resurrection morning, even his own disciples did not believe in the resurrection until he finally appeared to them. And when it says about he's acquainted with grief, it would have been the grief even of his own disciples. For when he does appear to his disciples, he reproached them, the scripture says, for their unbelief and their hardness of heart. Especially after, while he was there in his earthly ministry, he preached numerous times to them about that he had to be arrested, had to suffer, had to be crucified, and then 
rose on the third day, and yet it was oblivious to them. So the rejected Savior was even rejected on the resurrection morning until he appeared to them, and then all of a sudden joy began to spring, and praising began to spring, and worship began to spring, even from the doubting Thomas who said, my Lord, my God. And Jesus said to him, are are you believing because you've seen? Blessed are those who believe and have not seen, meaning of the generations that will come to trust in Christ. So he was the rejected Savior. We come to Isaiah verses 4 through 10. And we see the redeeming Savior. And it talks about the cross. And you say, well, why are we talking about the cross if it's about the resurrection? Well, because basically that number one is part of Isaiah's written word under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Number two, because it's true. And number three, that without the death of Christ, the atoning work of Christ, there'd be no need for the resurrection. The work of your salvation and my salvation was by Christ on the cross when he took your sins and my sins and also bore our penalty and punishment. And then he died. But to prove that he was making atonement, to prove that he was the son of God, he rose from the dead. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 says, For if Christ had not been raised from the dead, your faith is worthless. If Christ had not been raised from the dead, you are still in your sins. But that is not the case because, hallelujah, he is risen. He is risen indeed. And so from this point on then, just looking at these verses, I want to read these verses because they're so great. I want to get to the resurrection. I want to get to verses 10 through 12 as quickly as I can. But I have to read this. If you ever wanted to understand what does the death of Christ mean? Well, we believe Jesus died on the cross. What do you mean? It means this, what we have described here. And it's called substitutionary atonement. That's what the death of Christ did. This is what our faith is in. Atonement means that someone innocent dies for someone guilty. That's that's the payment. That's the payment. And the only person that can do that was the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he had his humanity. He was sinless. He became the perfect sacrifice. Our sin was placed on him. He took our punishment. He satisfied the wrath of God, and our sins have been atoned for. Why is it substitutionary? This is it. This is the heart. When you talk to people about coming to Christ, when you give them the gospel, this is the heart of it. Christ died in our place. That's it. That's what this is about. It's not that he just died. He died for us in our place, substitute. And we see that throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, and we see it fantastically right here in the book of Isaiah. And I'm going to read these verses to you, but let me just read something here. The words of Kyle and Dalish, the great Old Testament commentary, they said, 
that it was like Isaiah is writing this sitting beneath the cross upon Golgotha. That's how much in detail it is. And listen to when it talks about he bore our sins. It was our transgressions. Let me read it. It begins in verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore. We're, We're understanding it now. Substitution is being brought in. And our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Meaning the people said, what did you do, Jesus, that you incurred the punishment of God? In other words, they had a negative attitude, an Old Testament attitude that said, surely he's being disciplined by the Lord because he sinned. But the truth of the matter is God had sent him to the cross, the predetermined plan of God that he would make atonement, substitutionary atonement. How do I know? Verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. There it is. And of course, he was pierced on the cross after he died and made the atonement. It says he was crushed for our iniquities. And I I think this also has to do with the symbolic picture of the Old Testament of the lamb that was brought as a sacrifice and atonement. The sinner placed his hand on top of the lamb and the lamb was slaughtered in his place, the sins being metaphorically transferred. But those Old Testament sacrifices only covered sin for a time. Looking forward to when Christ took our sins away with his atonement. As John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. Our chastening fell upon him. Substitutionary atonement. And by his scourging, we are healed. And there I believe that scourging is a metaphor for the cross. And And the health there is spiritual health from the sickness of sin, not health and wealth. Verse 6, here's the true account of ourselves. All of us like sheep have gone astray. That's our sinfulness and our sin nature. Each of us has turned to his own way. But what? But what? But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Substitution, atonement. Verse 7, he was oppressed And he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. The idea here is it was a travesty. He did not sin. He did not do anything wrong. Really, he did nothing worthy of death, but he did not protest because he was accomplishing the will of the father. What was the will of the father? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is what Jesus did and he did not protest. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for our generation, Isaiah includes himself in this, as for our generation, who considered him, how did they view Christ? That he was cut off 
out of the land of the living. And there's that word for you, those who have been coming to Second Kings. And we see the word cut off used in there. And it's disciplinary action by God upon those who sin, particularly his own people at times. That's what people thought. He's dying because he's a sinner. No, he's dying because of we're sinners, and he's dying in our place. And it says it here. For the transgression of my people, our transgressions, to whom the stroke was due. That punishment was due us. The only thing is, the only punishment that there is, if we go alone into eternity without Christ, the only punishment there is for our sin is eternal punishment in hell. That's what the Bible says. There's no amount of time that a person is in hell and God says, well, boy, you guys have been here long enough. Hell does not remove sin. The deal is over by then. Now is the time of salvation to come to Christ. He took our sin and our punishment, and we must come to him now in faith. Lord Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sin. I take you as my Savior. I trust in you as my Savior. Save me, and he will forgive your sins and give you eternal life. And as we think of this, this is what Christ did on our behalf. The stroke was due us. But his stroke, being the son of God, he took it all that we won't have to have eternal punishment in hell. We are forgiven. In fact, he even makes us righteous before God, even though we still struggle in this life, our Christian lives, with the sin nature. Verse 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men. He had two thieves on either side of him. He died a criminal's death. But he wasn't a criminal. Isaiah gets it right. Watch this. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. He should have had a criminal's burial. But because his death brought salvation to man, he received a worthier burial. But he only needed to borrow it for three days. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Verse 10, just the first part. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. The Lord was pleased to crush him because of the great plan of salvation that was being accomplished through the substitutionary vicarious Atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. Can you say this morning, Jesus died for me? If you can, then you can also say, and he was raised from the dead, according to the scriptures, and for me. And now we come to the part where it does start to talk about his resurrection. And this is what we will take up the remainder of the time. This is where we've been trying to get to, but... It's too good. These things are too good. We come to the resurrection. In verse 10, the second part, there are about seven phrases here that I believe refer to the resurrection, and we're going to go through them. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, as a sacrifice, he will see his offspring. By the way, you can only see your offspring if you're raised from the dead. You can't see anything from the grave. 
he will prolong his days. Another reference. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. You've got to be alive to do that. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it again alive and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. You just can't get away from the atonement. He will bear their iniquities. Christ died for me. Christ died on my behalf. Christ died on your behalf. That is salvation when you share it with others. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, an inheritance. There's no sense having an inheritance if you're dead because just your, just your heritage, your lineage gets that inheritance. You don't get it, but this means he's alive and he will divide the booty, the inheritance with the strong, with believers because he poured out himself to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet, he concludes with, yet he himself bore, bore, took, burdened the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Interceded how if you're in the grave? No, interceded now if you're a resurrected Lord and Savior, which he is, and that's why this is entitled the resurrected Savior He was the rejected Savior. He was the redeeming Savior. And now, hallelujah, he is the resurrected Savior. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you now, your word is magnificent. Your word is better than any preacher can say it. We can only hope to attain, to say something that resembles the great truths that are here. But Father, now, would you show us those scriptures that tell us that Jesus will be raised on the third day according to the scriptures, according to Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. And we'll worship and have joy and praise you and our resurrected Savior even more. For it's in his name we pray, amen. I want to just read before we actually get to the verses. I want to read a couple of things that have been said about Isaiah 53. And this is why I'm so excited to be preaching this today. One wrote, Warren Wiersbe, like Mount Everest, Isaiah 53 stands out in beauty and grandeur, but only because it reveals Jesus Christ and takes us to Mount Calvary and to the empty tomb. As I read, Kyle and Dalich, and you now understand why, say that it's like Isaiah was writing while sitting underneath the cross there at Golgotha. That much detail. And one of the greatest explanations of substitutionary atonement. John MacArthur writes, Isaiah 53 is a pinnacle chapter in the Old Testament. It is the Mount Everest. Once, once you have a phrase like that, you coin it. Now, the first time that you quote someone, you have to say who you're quoting it from. I've been told that after that, it's yours. <laughs> it is the Mount Everest of the Old Testament. It is a Holy Scripture, I'm sorry, Holy Spirit-inspired prophecy of the meaning of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ 700 years 
before he came. And I came across a quote by Martin Luther, the reformer, Isaiah 53. And no doubt, he says, there is not in all the Old Testament scriptures a clearer text or prophecy both of the suffering and the resurrection of Christ than in this chapter. Wherefore, it is but right that it should be well known to all Christians, yea, should be committed to memory, that thereby we may strengthen our faith and defend it. But I must say that not everyone applauds this chapter. According to Jewish synagogues, this is called the forbidden chapter. At some point, Jewish rabbis stopped reading. They didn't take it out of the Bible, but they stopped reading Isaiah 53 in the synagogues. They don't read this anymore. One writes, the 17th century Jewish historian Raphael Levi admitted that long ago the rabbis used to read Isaiah 53 in synagogues. But after the chapter caused arguments and great confusion, the rabbis decided that the simplest thing would be to just take that prophecy out of the reading, out of the reading, not out of the Bible, out of the readings in the synagogues. And after going through Isaiah 53, even probably after just the reading of it this morning, you see why. It is, it is on the mark. But we're here to talk about the resurrection, of which Isaiah 53 does. And I find some seven phrases in the next three verses that talk about the resurrection. Three of them, verse 10, one, verse 11, and three in verse 12. And I'd like to go through them, and I'd like to explain them. First of all, verse 10. Now, the first part of verse 10, as we already said, is part of the redeeming Savior, part of that substitutionary atonement. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. But now here we go. There's a transition from the death to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you could even include the exaltation. The exaltation because he did the will of God and procured our salvation. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. Now, what's great about this is the idea of a guilt offering. A guilt offering was an offering that had to do with restitution. And you think about what does that mean for the believer and Christ dying for his sins? Well, Christ died and covered every aspect of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, but even this one. The idea is, is that when we sin and sinned, we have offended a holy God. We have violated God's character and his law. And you can't do that when it's his universe. And so there is a debt. We owe him a debt that has to be paid. Now, it can either be our debt that we say, oh, I'll just, I don't need to accept Christ. I'll just go through this and we'll see what happens. I think my good will outweigh my bad. You will not find that in Scripture. And that is not what substitutionary atonement is about. 
But the other one is Christ's substitutionary atonement, which is about removing all sin, who takes away the sin of the world. That is paying our debt. And then it says, if he does this, and he did, he will see his offspring. Well, tell me, how can you die and yet still see? This wasn't some sort of philosophical, metaphorical thing that he's in heaven and looking down. This is speaking of his resurrection. Remember, it says he died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he rose on the third day according to the scriptures. Where does it say? Well, it has to be this. There's nothing else in scripture that it could refer to. It doesn't matter how allegorical you want to be. He will see. He will see his offspring. Now, who were the offspring? Beloved, we are the offspring. The offspring are all the redeemed, those who have come to Christ. They're all the redeemed. They're all his children. And I just want to take a moment as we go to the New Testament and see what that has to say. Well, let's begin with John chapter 1, verse 12. Now, we had talked about John earlier in our Sunday school hour, John chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, where it says, He came unto his own, but his own received him not. But verse 12 says this, But as many as received him, have you received him? As received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. The authority, they become the children of God because they received him by faith, even to those who believe in his name. We are the children of God. We have a right relationship with God. Our sins have been atoned for. We've been brought into this relationship with God. Jesus has said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. doesn't matter what other people say. doesn't matter what other religions say. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ said. This is what the scriptures are telling us. He was the only one who was raised from the dead. And that's why we have our proof and our faith. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so we must receive him and we will become children of God. Galatians chapter 3, Paul teaching says, this is, this is talking to believers, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say everybody is a child of God. That's erroneous. He doesn't say everybody is a son of God. But those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, they are the children of God. And Christ will see his offspring. Well, we, all have to tur- we have to turn to Ephesians, <laughs> especially that's the reference that we looked at today. It says in Ephesians 5.8, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Therefore, walk as children of the light. There's even application to walk as God's children of the light because we've been brought into the light. And then one of the most affectionate verses from the affection of the Apostle John, 1 John 3, 1. Can you hear it? See how great a love 
the Father has bestowed on us. That we would be called children of God. And such we are. And then it says, for this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. We are not of the family of the world anymore. We are the family of God. And, and John says, such we are. We're not waiting to become the children of God. We are the children of God. And he, the resurrected Christ, Lord and Savior, will see his offspring. He is the head of the church, the body of Christ. He sees it. He's growing it. He, this is what the resurrected Savior is doing along with the fact that it proved his substitutionary atonement. Well, we have two more in this verse. The next one is, he will prolong his days. Now, you can't really apply that to when Jesus was here on earth in his earthly ministry. You can't apply it to that. I mean, first of all, he only lived 33 years. And second of all, it's not as if he was asking for more days so that he could make atonement. You don't, he didn't make atonement in his life. He made atonement in his death. Now, he lived a sinless life, which was the prerequisite. But what bought our salvation, what was the work of salvation, was his substitutionary atonement on the cross. How do we know it happened? Because he was raised from the dead on the third day. But it's the idea that his days were prolonged, meaning he was resurrected. And rightly so, because sometimes as Christians, we have a very limited view of salvation. Right, but limited. There are other things at work here, like what about the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant? The Davidic covenant says that David will have his seed on the throne, his kingdom, forever. Not for a time, but forever. But if his ultimate seed is still in the grave, God's promise failed. But God is faithful, as we learned yesterday, and his promises do not fail. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He was prolonged, and he is alive and at the right hand of God, and we know that he's coming back. One, there's the rapture. Could happen today. Today is just as good as any day. But he's also coming back in his second coming to bring back Israel to himself, to defend against Israel's enemies, and then to usher them in the kingdom. And what will happen in the kingdom, his earthly kingdom? Christ will sit on the throne. That's what the scriptures teaches. And by the way, if you're not sure about that, I have some studies on it but I don't want you to listen to those. I want you to just read the Old Testament. I just want you to read the Old Testament about how many times they talk about this kingdom, this future glorious kingdom, when the knowledge of the Lord will be throughout the whole land. That's not now. But it will be in the kingdom. And Christ will will reign in the kingdom. And then what about after the millennial kingdom for a thousand years? What about that's over? No need to worry because he is going to sit on the throne of David forever. And by the way, we heard that at Christmas time. The angel came to Mary and talked about the baby in her womb and said, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, 
and his kingdom will have no end. The Davidic covenant was the promise to David when God said, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And by the way, you can't find any kings in First and Second Kings who could fit that description. Most of them were being cut off. Like Ahab, him and all of his family so that there would be no confusion that Ahab could not sit on the throne or any of his descendants, but it would have to be through Christ. Your throne shall be established forever. Even the book of Revelation refers to this. So this idea of prolonging his days is a reference to his resurrection. And thirdly, it says, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Now, we could maybe want to say, well, that means in God's hand, except that's not the context. The him, the pronoun him in this verse is, the Lord Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord Yahweh will prosper in his hand, in the Savior's hand. And in order for that to be done, he would have to be resurrected. And that's exactly what it is. And it, all of a sudden now, it begins. We're, we're beginning to see here Christ's post-resurrection ministry. There is the will of God, the good pleasure that is being prospered in his hand. He has a hand in it. So does God the Father. So does God the Holy Spirit. By the way, whenever you think of the church, you must think of the person of the Holy Spirit because that's his ministry to the church. But also, too, because of Christ who is building his church. This is the ministry to the redeemed. This is the ministry to the church, and this is Christ prospering this. This is all according to the good pleasure of the Lord. What is the good pleasure of the Lord? That many would come to Christ. That they would be placed in the body of Christ, the church. The church would be built. That they would be sanctified and brought to maturity. Remember Jesus prayed, John 17, 17, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And even intercession, Christ praying for believers now, which we will talk about in just a moment. All of these uh, is God's good pleasure of the ongoing prospering of God's will of salvation. And it doesn't matter what our world is going through. It doesn't matter how bad it is. I mean, it matters and it's sad and it's horrible and it's against God. But God is not thwarted by it. And the plan of salvation continues on because it's being prospered by the hand of the resurrected Savior. This is the good pleasure of the Lord. And furthermore, also of that good pleasure and the prospering his hand is that we, the church, the redeemed, are the bride of Christ. We are the ones that heaven, and somewhat similar, and that's okay. He's repeating it more than once. It says, and as a result of the anguish of his soul, 
he will see it and be satisfied. The anguish of his soul certainly refers to the grief here when he realized what Saul that his own did not receive him. The anguish of his soul and having to be separated from the Father, uh, not not the Godhead divided, but the idea that the Father was now going to punish the Son for the sin of man, the anguish of his soul for that in the garden. As a result of this, because he died on the cross, he will see it and be satisfied. Wait, you don't see anything from the grave. Ah, because Isaiah was prophesying about the resurrection. He will see it and be satisfied. And I think this is just as much a reference to verse 10 again of God's good pleasure, God's good will. That's what Jesus Christ accomplished. And this is what he is alive and being a part of, and this is what's, what's happening, and he will be satisfied. It goes on to say, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, that's Christ, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Well, let me just look at the last part of that first. When people come to Christ now, when sinners come to Christ now, place their faith in him, they are not only forgiven for sin, but they are given the righteousness of Christ. They are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's what it means to justify. As he will bear, we're back into substitutionary atonement, as he will bear their iniquities when he's on the cross. And so because he did this, There's this resurrection and even the idea of exaltation in the resurrection and exaltation in Christ's post-resurrection ministry. But I want to just quickly look at this phrase that says, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will do these things. And I think that's a fair translation. This has been noted by other commentaries that it could also be uh, permissible to translate it the knowledge of him. Now, What that would mean, and I'm not against the meaning of it, would be that people need to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ for them to be justified. They need to come to Christ of the knowledge of him, knowing that he died on the cross for their sins, that he is the son of God, that if they believe on him, they'll be forgiven. You must come to that saving knowledge. But I don't think it has to be inserted here. I think we could talk about this savior who's been doing all of these things and who's the resurrected Savior, and by his knowledge, many will be justified, continuing on the plan of salvation through the generations. One writes this. Christ's divine knowledge of how to justify sinners was the plan that was accomplished by his own one sacrifice, where he declared many righteous before God. And one of the verses that would go along with that, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Describe that. Substitutionary atonement. Vicarious, if you want to add that word. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Not that we become righteous enough to go to heaven, but that Christ's righteousness is put to our account. It's almost like, no, Lord, no. Yes, 
Because the death of Christ forgave all of our sins, cleaned the slate, and now the righteousness of Christ has been applied to us. And that is how we know our salvation is secure. That's how we know we can't lose our salvation. Because once you are cleared and acquitted of sin by the blood of Christ, once you are given the righteousness of Christ, there's no going back. And praise God, there's no going back. This is our salvation. And as we think about it here in verse 11, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, he will justify many. What about verse 12? I believe that there are three of them in verse 12. Three phrases in verse 12. And the first one is the allotted portion. Notice it says, therefore, therefore what? Because he did bear their iniquities. Because he did provide substitutionary atonement. And because he was raised from the dead, I will allot him a portion with the great. You don't have a portion or an inheritance if you're dead. In fact, that's when we go to the lawyer and they look at the will and the inheritance that your loved one has left you is no longer theirs. But they get one final say as to who's going to get it. Well, it's being given to him. He's not the deceased one anymore. He is the resurrected one now. Therefore, because of what he did on the cross, and you see the idea of not only resurrection, but also exaltation, this this exaltation because he accomplished the will of God in bringing sinners into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. And the, the verbiage here is verbiage that speaks of a triumphant king. And in history, there were many victors who would win. And the saying goes that the spoils go to the victor. We see that in history, whether in biblical history or in just secular history. But here is the ultimate victor. And of course, he is going to get the allotted portion. Of course, he is going to get the inheritance because no one but he paid the price. Now, what would we be talking about here? What would this passage be talking about? Well, number one, I would believe it would be his restored glory. Christ did not step down from his deity. Deity can never step down from being deity. But he took on humanity. He took on humility. He put his divine prerogatives aside, and he laid his ultimate glory as God the Son aside. But in John chapter 17, verse 5, he said this, Now, Father, because he's accomplishing God's will, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So he set it aside. It was still his, but he set it aside. In fact, there were times when you would see that glory, like the transfiguration, when most of the time his humanity hid his Shekinah glory. But there were times like the transfiguration when no amount of flesh and blood and bone could hold back the glorious Shekinah glory of the Son of God. And now he was asking for this to be restored to him as far as the portion goes. And this is why there's no need for the Son in heaven 
Heaven will be brightened by the Shekinah glory of Christ. And through all the transparent jewels and the streets of gold, it will all be illuminated with the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, the one who's at the right hand of God, glory restored. And I also think, too, that you would include in here probably many things, but another major thing, which would be allotted him a portion, would be his bride. In all of this plan, we have, you know, the millennial kingdom, we have the rapture, we have the Davidic covenant, but you also have that the father in this whole process has been preparing a bride for his son. And who is or who are those who make up the bride of Christ? It's us as believers. And there's almost on one hand where we're almost ashamed to say, I'm sorry, you got a humble, humble bride here. But guess what he's doing? Right now he is preparing his bride. He's maturing his bride. And when his bride is in heaven, his bride will be perfected. And his bride also will have the... the uh, the crowns that we're earning now. And I know we like to say, well, you know, I don't want to just do it for a crown until you find out it's for adorning the bride. It's, it's, we're giving them to Christ. We're giving those crowns to Christ and throwing them at his feet in adoration of him. Well, if that's the case, give me as many crowns as I can have. Just don't let me stand aside of the Apostle Paul when we start to cast them before Jesus' feet. And I think this is also part of the portion. And there's many other things theologically you could uh, talk about as far as his inheritance and his glory. But notice we're not done. It says, and he will divide the booty, that is the spoils, that is the inheritance. He will divide the booty with the strong. Now, who do you think the strong are? Well, let's ask this theologically. Who are the ones that he's going to share his glory and inheritance with? Believers. And it's not because we're strong in ourselves. It's because we are strong positionally in the one whom we trusted as our Savior. And he's going to divide that inheritance with us. And we've talked about this in the book of Ephesians. This is one of our positional truths. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, it says, also, we have obtained an inheritance. Why? What did we do? Well, we are related. We are the bride of Christ. We are the children of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. It says, now, if you are children, which John said, and we are, then you are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And so he's going to share these great riches, spiritual booty, heavenly booty, inheritance with the strong, with believers. And this even very well could speak of the millennial kingdom, of what's going to happen in the millennial kingdom. That's in the mind of Isaiah. Isaiah writes about the millennial kingdom and so you don't really divorce that from the whole idea of this. 
but Christ will even share his spiritual victories during his millennial reign, John MacArthur. And then finally, the last one, the seventh one, is going to be intercession. He intercedes for the believer. Well, let me tell you, you're not praying if, you're, if you've died. You're only praying if you're alive or resurrected. And that is part of his post-resurrection ministry. Notice what it says there. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Substitutionary atonement, right? Yet he himself bore the sins of many. Substitutionary atonement, do you get it? And interceded for the transgressors. Now, I think we could take his intercession in two ways. One would be the very fact that he interceded with his death on the cross. He became the mediator between God and man. So we see mediation there as part of that intercession. But, but it also is prayer, which we'll look at just a moment. But 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator, also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now, isn't it interesting that, that Paul called him the man Christ Jesus? Why didn't you elevate his deity there? Because that's already a given. But the idea is now that he's also man and God, he is the perfect mediator between a holy God and sinful man, if indeed he took their sin on the cross and made atonement for it and then proved it by being raised from the dead, and he did. But we also see in Scripture there is the idea of intercession, that he is praying for us. You know, when we ask for prayer, it's a blessing to know that people are praying for us. Perhaps we didn't get time to let people know to pray about something, or perhaps, I don't know, it's so uh, difficult that we have to leave it unspoken. But there's one who prays all the time, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 8, verse 34, you have to love this. It's asking, well, who has anything against the believer? I mean, it says in Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so he goes on later on and he's saying, well, well, who's the one that condemns the believer? Christ Jesus? Who died? Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. No, he's not condemning us. He's praying for us. We also see his advocacy in standing before the Father when Satan, in spiritual warfare, accuses us. But he's interceding for us and he's praying for us. It says just as much in Hebrews seven twenty-five. It says, therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I hope you have a lot of people praying for you. I would believe you have a lot of people here at Grace Bible Church praying, and we'll pray for you. But you could take comfort that you have one who always prays according to the will of God, And if it's in accordance to the will of God, it will always be answered. That one being the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, who could not intercede for us if he was not resurrected. So 
the conclusion for this is this is one of the great passages that talk about and he will be raised on the third day according to the scriptures from that fantastic chapter Isaiah 53. In order for Christ to see his offspring, to see and be satisfied, to continue his ministry to the church, he had to be resurrected. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And as we closed with our application this morning at our sunrise service, that even though we see Christ rejected, yet by the end of the day, he was not rejected because he showed himself. And all of that grief and suffering was replaced with joy. It says, when the disciples found out they had great joy, When Mary Magdalene saw Jesus and he was revealed to her, she clung to him. He said, stop continuously clinging to me, Mary. It's not like I'm going to be staying here like I did before. I have to go to my father. When the women saw him and understood it was him, it says they bowed and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. When the disciples realized that he was the resurrected Savior. Not only did they have great joy, but it says they were in the temple daily, in the Jewish church daily, praising him like we are today. And finally, when the great doubter, Thomas, who said, I will not believe unless I can stick my hand in his side. And when Jesus appeared to him, I believe there was a touch of reproach, irony, maybe even a little shame on Thomas's part. Thomas, come here. Get your hand out. Touch my side. But even Thomas exclaimed, my Lord and my God. And we see his worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, Jesus did not rebuke him for calling him God If he was just a mere prophet and someone called him God, he would have rebuked him like the angels rebuked the apostle John in heaven. Do not say that we are to be worshipped. Only God is to be worshipped. And Thomas worshipped God, God the Son, without a rebuke. But Jesus said, have you believed because you've seen? (laughs) Yeah. That's what you get from being from Missouri. Yeah. Blessed are those who believe not having seen. That's us. We are blessed and we know it to be absolutely true because the greatest evidence and affirmation is it came from the scriptures and we read it this morning, Isaiah chapter 53. Doubt no more. And I'm just sorry for those who want to deconstruct their faith. I'm sorry for those who want to pull down every stronghold of Christianity and its doctrines and even and especially the resurrection of Christ. And it doesn't even have to be literal. I'm so sorry for you. I'm so sorry. But we're not in that camp. Believers today, we should have the same joy of Jesus' resurrection even though he had experienced the rejection of the world. The world is still rejecting him, but we have joy. I don't care what they think. I don't care. They're not going to rain on my parade. They're not going to rain on this celebration of Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. We know our sins have been forgiven. 
Despite the unbelief in the world and perhaps even our own unbelief before coming to Christ, despite all that, we have come to Christ and put our faith in his death and resurrection for our salvation. And I hope you have. If you haven't, I implore you. It's a win-win. To the true believer, this brings about joy because we have forgiveness of sins and eternal life because of the proof of his substitutionary atonement. But not only should we rejoice as believers in the resurrection of Christ, we should worship him even as those who first saw Jesus raised from the dead. We should bow down. We should cling to him with our arms of faith. We should bow down and worship at his feet. We should call him our Lord and our God because he is a risen, resurrected Savior. Can I hear an amen from all of God's people? He is risen. With that, let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you have done. And thank you that you have done it through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what bought our salvation, was the work of salvation. Jesus said, it is finished. The work of salvation was done. But not everything was done. The proof, the resurrection, had to happen. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, but if Christ had not been raised, our faith is worthless and we are still in our sins. We are not in that place of doubt because we know that he has been raised from the dead. Oh God, would you give us that resurrection joy, that resurrection peace, that resurrection worship and glory of our Lord until the day we get to see him in his presence and be with him forever. And I pray that that's true for everyone.